Hi, my name is Tara, and welcome to our first special episode for the Eclectic Readers Book Club. Today, we are interviewing the author of the Rabbitback Literature Society, Pazi Ilmari Yes Kalenin. Hi, Pazi. Thank you so much for being here today. I just wanted to say real quick that we were so amazed that you bothered to even listen to our podcast <laughs> on Rabbitback last month. Last month. Um, so it's just an honor to have you with us today, and thank you for taking interest in Eclectic Readers. Well, thank you for inviting me in your uh, this podcast. And I must say that I was quite impressed by your podcast. You really understood the book way better than most of the people who have read it. Oh, my God. That's so, thank you. <laughs> that's so awesome to hear. Um, so we have a few questions for you today. Um, okay. We're going to start asking you just a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, you probably get this question all the time, but... What inspired you to become a writer? Well, that is quite a common question and a good question. And I often question myself for <laughs> spending all my time by writing books when I could do something else. But I think one of the reasons is that as a child, I had these bad dreams about vampires uh, <laughs> from five years old. Uh, when I was five, we used to live next to the old cemetery in Uvascular City. And the guy next door, uh, for some reason, decided to tell me that when you have been dead for 100 years, uh, you climb up, out, up from your grave and start to feed on <laughs> people's blood. So <laughs> when I was five, I really believed in vampires. And I started to have these awful nightmares and I had them until I was 10, and then I learned how to fight vampires in my dreams. But uh, I have always had very vivid dreams and nightmares. And, well, I got over the nightmares in the end, but the very vivid dreams continued. And, for example, I don't know if you have read it, but it has been translated and published in English in Torkom. Where the Trains Turn is the novella I wrote years ago. And I got the idea for it from my dream about trains jumping off their rails and chasing me all around the city. I, had, had, I started to have these dreams when I was five or six. And they were kind of a nightmares, but actually I enjoyed them. And I, <laughs> my method to write is often to take something from my dream, something that fascinates me, and I'm trying to use it in a way that I can uh, pass it uh, on to other yeah. people. And yeah, dreams feature pretty heavily in Rabbit Back, too. Yeah. And, well, I think being a writer is related to things like being a psychopath serial <laughs> killer you have you just have these strange experiences in your childhood uh, I had these bad dreams about vampires and things and then you just have to do something some people kill other people and I'm trying to spread my dreams and dreamscapes and all the things I see in my dreams to other people it's quite, quite I don't know if 
that were healthy. <laughs> in the end, but, I, I think it's healthier than the other option, personally. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. So, but well, I read read books, a lot of books when I was younger, and when we moved from bigger city to this little town called Korpilahti, in English it would be Backwood Bay. Okay. Uh, I didn't get that much friends for years and I spent too much, way too much time in the local library and I, I was quite like young Ella and I read way too many books all the time. I was reading something and well, if you read a lot then there is a point when you start to think about writing yourself. And, well, uh, I have this character flaw that makes me want to do everything interesting myself. And, <laughs> for example, um, I'm that guy who just can't enjoy a magician's show because he wants to make the magic happen himself. So there may be some talent involved, but being a writer is based on childhood traumas and maybe some character flaws, I think. <laughs> well, um, I'm certainly happy you became a writer and are sharing your dreams. And, you know, I think that actually we were discussing this on Twitter the other day, but I think your book is one of the most interesting of the 70 books we have read for this podcast and this club. Now, I think yours is actually one of my favorites. Oh, thank um, you. So speaking of vampires, you know, we heard you were a fan of the Joss Whedon show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and yep. we have to admit, we are too. Um, <laughs> who was your favorite character? Which one inspired you the most? Well, I think um, Willow was the hottest, but <laughs> the best character was maybe Spike. To a certain extent, I was like him in my youth. And I, at first, I was this wimpy bookworm. And as I told you, I spent way too much time in libraries. But then I became a punk rock rebel, behaving badly <laughs> and wandering the streets all night long and things like that. So I really could relate to Spike. Um, no, that's fantastic. Spike and Willow are my two favorite characters, too. Um, what other type of shows and media have inspired you or that you watch right now? Well, all kind of shows where there are good stories to find. And if there is a sense of wonder in them, all the better. Uh, I really don't enjoy fantasy as a genre so much. But I, for example, I love Game of Thrones. Right. Because there's this realistic approach that is blended with fantastical elements and sense of wonder. And it makes it feel real and entertaining enough for me to spend my time on it. Uh, and I think this kind of thing, you know, blending fantasy and realism is quite hard to achieve in a good way. And... That's why most of the TV series and movies and books with elements of fantasy in them are not that interesting, to me at least. And as a writer, my goal is to blend different genres uh, freely in a way that 
there will be an interesting story as a result. But it takes time and effort, and um, I'm very slow as a writer. Is there a genre or medium that you really want to tackle next? Um, I have dreamed about becoming a screenwriter, but I guess in Finland that's not an option really because there just isn't enough jobs in that industry in here. You should try sending something over to America. (laughs) Well, maybe, yeah. Um, so last question, and then we'll get on about rabbit back. Um, who are some of your favorite authors? Um, any that influence your specific writing or any recommendations you might even have for our own book club members? Well, um, lately there was a very long time when I didn't read that much, but lately I have been reading again and Authors like Peter Hug, uh, Johannes Inisalo, she's Finnish, and her books have been published in USA. She's quite good. Then the, we have this Juha Pekka Koskinen in Finland. His works haven't been translated yet, but they should be, absolutely. And then like writers like Mihail Bulgakko, Master and Margarita, that's very, very good novel and it has inspired me so much and then authors like Stephen King and Clive Barker and Ray Bradbury she, he was one of my favorites when I was younger and uh, the illustri- illustrated man was really really uh, huge experience for me and the Chronicles of Mars and then Jeff Vandermeer I really loved his Southern Reads trilogy. I read it just a couple of days ago, and it was a really mind-blowing thing. And then German authors like Thomas Mann, he's quite good, and Kurt Vonnegut, he was one of the big ones to me when I was younger, and Katsuo Ishiguro, Haruki Murakami. I don't like all of his works, but I loved Kafka on the shore. And then, of course, Neil Gaiman and especially his comics, like yeah. Sandman. The Sandman comics are fantastic. Yes. They are really inspiring. And often when I, I'm out of the ideas, then I, well, I just watch the images from his comics and they, are, they do the trick. Well, it, it all comes back to dreaming, doesn't it? Yes. With Morpheus. Is that the endless that you relate to most? Um, maybe. I don't, I'm not sure, but the death, she is quite hot. Loud <laughs> <laughs> death. She definitely is. I used to date girls like her when I was younger. <laughs> when you were the Spike character? Yeah. All right, well, uh, let's go ahead and actually talk about Rabbit Back for a second. Um, so I know this, for you, Rabbit Back was quite some time ago. Uh, but if you can remember that far back... I'm what, trying. <laughs> what inspired you to write the novel? Well, 
Originally, it was a play I wrote for the Christmas party of my faculty when I was studying Finnish language and literature in, in the local university. Um, by that time, I had written many short stories and won a few awards, and I thought it was my time to write a novel, finally. And the play was a whole different thing, but there was this character of Laura White in it and his pupils. And um, there was this rat emperor who was luring in the dark in that play. And then when I started to write the novel, I thought that Laura's character would deserve a whole book. And then I started to write it. Uh, of course, there were some dreams to use. For example, the book Blake is taken straightly from my dreams. And that library of Rabbitback Town, it's from my dreams. Uh, I would love that library, by the way, the way you <laughs> yeah. described it. I was like, why don't I have that in my town? <laughs> uh, it's a combination, actually, of the real libraries. In the eastern Finland, there's this Joensuu city I lived in for a couple of years when I was a child. And there was this magical big library. Uh, unfortunately, it has been taken down or something. I oh. visited the city a couple of years ago and I tried to find it, but I didn't. But then there is this small library in my old hometown, Korpilahti, Backwood Bay, and I combined these two libraries, this big library of Joensu and this small library of Korpilahti, and then took something from my dreams again, and there it was. Well, it was fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah. when you um, were approached, were, I, I'm assuming you were approached to have Rabbit Back debut, debut in English, or uh, what was that decision like? Um, having it published here? Well, of course, I didn't have to consider it too much. Uh, when I, there are no literary agents practically in Finland. Mm. And uh, there are two or three of them nowadays. But uh, when I published that novel in Finland, there were no literary agents at all. Because we have so small market when it comes to selling books. So, there just ain't enough money in the business for uh, agents. But when I got this agent of mine, Rita from Context, uh, I, I'm not sure what the official name of that agency is, but Con Context Agency, I think. But when I had her, then of course she was free to sell any of my books if if just somewhere, someone were interested in them. And when she told me that she had sold my first book in UK, well, of course, I was amazed because <laughs> I, I had never dreamed about getting my works translated and sold abroad. And when um, I think the Pushkin Press in UK sold the rights to USA, and when I heard about that, I was more amazed because getting having my 
books published in USA was just something that even with my imagination, it was quite a long shot. <laughs> so I could say that I was very happy when it really happened. Yeah, I always feel sometimes that the U.S. gets um, just the short end of the stick when it comes to the great international novels because, you know, it's so hard to, I think, enter the U.S. market, but I'm so glad that this book did. Um, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> Has the fan reaction surprised you at all from the U.S. readers? Well, maybe a little because... When that book was published in Finland, it didn't really get that much, much attention. And I think I'm more known in UK than in Finland. <laughs> and, well, things like that that we are doing right now, it's quite, well, if I had known this years before, I would have thought that this is like a dream or something. Speaking with lovely U.S. ladies about my book, it's something that I really couldn't, couldn't imagine, imagine years ago. Well, we are glad to have you on, certainly. Um, yes. So about the book and specifically about some of the characters, uh, there are times throughout the story where we see the, uh, the authors of the Literature Society um, observing others to use as characters in their books. I think I know the answer to this by now, but uh, did you ever do that? Did you ever like go into shopping marts and just take notes on people? Well, all the time, and I think all <laughs> writers do that because, mm-hmm. in a way, we are vampires. Um, <laughs> For example, I stole some freckles from a friend of mine for the character of the novel I am working on right now. But uh, I rarely steal a whole person at once because it's uh, more useful to take smaller parts, like someone's way to walk or talk or way to laugh or dodge difficult questions when approached or things like that. But it's like being Dr. Frankenstein, that you just take take one part from here and one part from there and then make something new about them, new of them. And, well, I think every character has something from the author himself because it would be quite hard for make them move without that familiar part. So another way the authors of the Literature Society got some information for the books was the game, uh, which was a very divisive topic among our (laughs) listeners. Um, How did you create the game? Well, I think it's not that hard So make up something like that because we people do it all the time. But, uh, well, mostly we, of course, have this small talk going on and it can be quite boring sometimes. And uh, I prefer deep and honest conversations. And, of course, most of the people are not ready to talk that way. But some people are and, well... That is when the discussions 
become interesting. Right. And you know all those long nights when you are maybe drinking a little and speaking with good friends and then things get deep and uh, people start to open up. Uh, well, it's it can be quite frightening, but it's also interesting. And as a writer, <laughs> I see my opportunity uh, <laughs> to steal something and use it later in the most proper way, of course, without giving away other people's secrets. But, you know... But opportunistic well, vampirism. Yes, yes, I must admit that. <laughs> <laughs> so we have two theories about Emperor Rat. Okay. Um, one guess, um, and the one I, I think I talked about on the podcast was that uh, the creature that possessed Laura White is represented in the Creatureville books as Emperor Rat. And another is that the emperor might represent even death, this thing that's oncoming. Um, I know you, you, you shy away from confirming specifics, but uh, are either on the right track or? Um, well, I think both of those theories are quite good. And, uh, but Emperor Rat represents, uh, in the end, the ultimate truth about ourselves. Mm-hmm. It is out there, like Emperor Rat, lurking in the dark, or it can be found in your, in the very core of your heart. But if you are exposed to it, it can destroy you, and it will destroy you, because uh, you could say that we all dress up in stories. They are the way we can bear ourselves. And we hide the most uh, dark parts of ourselves. Uh, we wrap them in the stories we tell our, uh, to other people and to ourselves. And, uh, well, when it comes to Laura White, the truth, or at least one explanation, can be found from the memory of herself, seeing how young girl, who was Laura White, stepped on the thin ice right. on the pond. Uh, and the person Laura grew up to be knows deep inside her that she saw it from the point of view of something that was hiding under the ice before it broke under the girl who was Laura. And this thing is something Laura White was thinking about just before she vanished on those stairs uh, in the whirlwind of snow. And I think every people, all the people have that kind of things. They try to forget about themselves some, some moment in the past when you did something that exposed something about you to you, something not that pleasant. Right. And uh, if you think it too much and if you are exposed to it, then it can break you down and cause a lot of troubles. Well, yeah. So does Laura's disappearance have as much to do with the idea of her recognizing this ultimate truth about herself as it does with her fulfilling 
her personal story, which is creating that those ten members of a liter- of the literature society um, and being a, su- a successful writer. Well, it is quite hard to, for me to say because I haven't <laughs> read the book. <laughs> I, I wrote it and it was published um, about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I haven't read it once. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. I'm just not able to read my own stuff. Like like movie stars who can't watch themselves in movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but well. The original working title of that book was The Disintegration of Laura White. Oh, wow. And I, it was meant to be a story or the analysis of, uh, of the way people can disintegrate mentally. But, well, it became something else and <laughs> well, it always happens that way. Yes. So we had one listener um, and reader and member of our club who had just a very strong connection with bees throughout your story. Um, so she made us promise, promise we'd ask this question. Okay. Um, what do the bees mean to you and how are they tied into the theme of the book? Her theory was that Laura White was um, somewhat of a queen bee, even to these, uh, to this system these society members? Well, she certainly is, but actually it was originally a wasp that crawled out from her mouth uh-huh. in that one scene. But for some reason, I don't remember right now, Lola, Lola Rogers, the translator, wanted to change it. Um, and there was very good reason for it, but I just don't remember it now. But, but when... It's about Finnish summer. There are a lot of bees and wasps everywhere. And it's quite natural to write about them when you describe mm-hmm. the surroundings. Sorry, Kim. I apologize. I couldn't get some <laughs> deep, crazy answer for you there. Um, so uh, another question that came up, and it was pretty divisive again for us, um, was Ella's father's relationship with Laura White. Um, and it having anything possibly to do with Ella being chosen as the tenth member, um, and just well, generally, that, what did Laura see in Ella? That is a good question, and I have thought about it a lot. Um, maybe Laura saw some talent in Laura's father, but he just wasn't good enough to be a member. Unlike Ella, who is worthy candidate for joining the society, and well, maybe Laura had her eye on Ella because of her father. And in a way, the whole society is Laura's attempt to learn to understand humanity, humanity, mm-hmm. and finally herself, because she's not sure about herself being a human being at all, and. Well, all the members of society are nothing but little mirrors for Laura White to study her own reflection as it is presented in their books. And uh, the whole thing about Laura is the thought of someone leaving emotionally marks in the kids. Uh, 
hoping they would write about her. I think Laura is quite narcissistic <laughs> as a person. She uses those kids and, well, I am a teacher myself and I know other teachers and I know the, the dark sides of being a teacher and there is something narcissistic in the teacher's, teacher's job, you know. You stand before all the young people and make them listen to you and your truths and try to affect them in a good way. But it's it's quite a place to be. And maybe Laura White is uh, the ultimate dark side of being a teacher. <laughs> Something like that. I'm, I'm not sure. Jeanette, you hear that? <laughs> Jeanette, um, another one of our... Uh, podcasters. She's actually a teacher for a living as well. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> um, so I actually, going back to something you said about Ella using the kids to sort of define humanity and mm-hmm. teach her about humanity, I think that came out really clearly when you, um, I believe one of the writing assignments that she gave them was to think about if they were aliens, how to describe mothers and and how to describe just general things about the world around them. And I, I, I think that was like my moment of clarity that Laura White was really using these kids for that exact experience. Um, so I thought that came across really well in the novels. Um, and, and, you know, you didn't exactly say, but, um, you know, Ella had already written about Laura White when Laura chose Ella as the 10th member as a part of her um, dissertation. Is mm-hmm. that probably one of the reasons you think, you know, was it just that she was hoping Ella would continue talking about her in her narcissistic way? Maybe so. I don't know. I think you know the book better than I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't remember that much about it. I, I remember what I thought when writing it, but I'm not sure what actually came up. <laughs> What actually stuck? Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let, let's move on to Oscar because we thought uh, the reveal of Oscar being autistic and his notebook only being filled with symbols um, was really interesting and I, I think quite unexpected for all of us, but in in a great way. Um, you know, what did you? Why did you choose to make Oscar autistic? Mm. Well, I guess I just wanted to show that all the new books are, in a way, conceived by previous works mm-hmm. in the history of literature. And Oscar is kind of a middleman who lets other kids to enjoy the masterpieces of those classical works and be influenced by it, but in a way that makes it seem possible for them uh, to write as well as the old masters. Right. Because they get envy and the, they think that Oscar wrote the, those passages. He uh, says, reads aloud in Laura's glasses. Um, and as we know, a certain kind of autistic people have this talent of remembering things extremely well although they don't always understand things very well. And you could say that Oscar is at the same time the most important member of the society. 
because he is there to represent all the literature ever written, all the classics. That's a and big all, job. Yeah, and on the other hand, he's unable to write anything himself. And maybe Oscar is some kind of reflection of the teachers of literature, <laughs> when I think it now. Teachers uh, do not often create anything themselves, but they teach other people, the students, to love mm -hmm. literature or try, <laughs> die trying to. Yeah. So Oscar is in some ways a muse. Unfortunately, a hated muse, poor child, but, but, but a muse. I like that. Um, so the idea of the book plague. Yep. <laughs> very intriguing. You already said it came from your dreams. It seems very dreamlike, so I think that's really appropriate. Um, is that meant to be any sort of social commentary on modern day books at all? Um, the way, like you just said, all literature is sort of stolen from other literature um, and repurposed in a way. Um, it, it does have anything to do with that or is it something that solely came from your own mind? Well, the theory sounds very good and uh, I'm ready to buy it. But, <laughs> um, like all symbolism, it can be interpreted in many different ways and uh, that's the way I like it. But the book, Blake, well, it was original from my dreams and in my dreams I tried to read something and like most of the people in their dreams when they try to read something the text just doesn't stay still it's impossible to read anything in your dreams and i i have heard that it's one way to tell if you are dreaming or not if you try to read something uh, but it was of course it was meant to be something funny to read uh, to create this sense of wonder I like so much. But um, of course, there is some, many, um, some and many symbolistic layers if you want to analyze it that way. And I, um, from the point of view of a writer, the book like, makes sense because writers know that although the printing press makes all the words and sentences and paragraphs and stories to freeze and be still there to read, uh, the true nature of novel is different. And all the stories found in every book could have been told in so many different ways. And yet there's only one for us to read. Because you just have to decide what happens in your book and settle for one ending instead of two. Except in my second novel that is coming... It, it's going to be published in English next year. They do two different endings, actually. And Ooh. there are two different books in the market. And you don't know when you buy one, which one is it. Oh, my God. And, that's amazing. <laughs> yes. And it's uh, the secret passages in the hillside town or what was the working title of the translation, I'm not sure, but uh, it, in a way it continues the thought of the book, Blake. And I had this idea of writing two different endings and giving them both 
to my publisher to print. And uh, to my big surprise, my publisher uh, agreed with me that we would make this happen. And then there is two different books. There's Rus and uh, Blanc. And in one of them, there is a happy end, and in the other one, well, not so happy. I and was excited to read this book before this interview, <laughs> and now I am thrilled. I cannot wait to get my hands on it. Uh, I'm not sure yet uh, if the UK publisher is willing to do the same thing, or maybe he wants to settle for just one end, but I hope he does the, we will does the same thing as my Finnish publisher. Me too. So let's go ahead and talk about The Secret Passages in a Hillside Town, because it is your next book being released um, in English, and I know we're all very excited about it. Um, you just sort of told us the amazing hook about the end, and God, I really <laughs> hope they do what you did in Finland. Um, but can you give us a general summary of that book? Well, giving summaries of my stories, is it has always been very difficult for me because there are so many different things in them and when I try to explain them, they sound really stupid. But uh, I will quote to you the uh, introduction of my book on my agent's web page. page. <coughs> Sorry. Um, um, my agent writes about that book that Paul Auster meets David Lynch, if you prefer quick descriptions, and then Olli Suominen, who is the protagonist of this book, is a children's book publisher, a member of the local church council, a husband and a father. In every way, a respectable, honest and decent guy, a trusted member of society. Behind this irreproachable facade, Olli is bored, moving through life in stupor, stupor day after day. His relationship with his wife, Aina, a schoolteacher, has faded to routine, and his little son, Laurie, feels like a stranger to him. The change comes when Oli contacts his long-lost childhood sweetheart, Kerttu, on Facebook. Kerttu has become a famous writer, and her next book, The Magical City Guide is due to be published in Oli's publishing house. Little by little, Oli slips out of his numbing workaday life into, into a free fall. Dramatic, suppressed childhood memories resurface. Dreaming and wakefulness intermingle. A feeling of bleakness is replaced by powerful passions. Uh, in the cinematic life, a novel, that's the previous working title of that book. Uh, Jaskelen has conjured up a magnetic ambience-filled experience. The novel's emotional range extends from melancholy to melodrama and horror. There's all, also a touch of a famous five feeling drawn in. However, these famous five are not like the ones we are used to know, if you know that in the Bluton's series of children's book. Mm-hmm. There's this famous wife, and I just wanted to recreate, recreate it uh, <laughs> a little bit in a dark way. So but yeah. How does the book plague feature in Secret Passages? Or is that from the, just the dual ending? Yes, 
I, there's no book black in that book. <laughs> that. Well, there in all of my stories, there are these areas between reality and dream that are not completely real, but they are somewhat real. And the book black is one way to express those ideas and secret passages are another way. And, well, the magical element of this second novel of mine, it's all about the secret passages. You can climb in and there's something strange in a way time goes in those passages. Passages, yeah. But as I told you before, it's quite hard for me to try to explain that book because I haven't read that <laughs> either. <laughs> uh, so, what makes it? Um, what are some of the more you? What makes it different from Rabbit Back? And you know, what can readers expect? Is it you know sometimes with secret passages there can be a bit more of a horror thematic um, I don't know if it is um, but it, or maybe even like um, I, you know and I'm just putting words in your mouth um, <laughs> but what can readers expect from from secret passages well there's something I, there's some romantical irony in it and some of those who loved my first book they didn't like that much the other but on the other hand, many uh, housewives, for example, uh, they loved that second novel of mine. So I could say that the second book uh, expanded my audience. Some of them were disappointed with it because there is this love story and they were expecting something different. But you cannot please everyone and I guess you should even shouldn't try. No, no, that's hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say it's primarily a love story then? Well, it's a twisted love story, of course, because I have written it. <laughs> uh, there are horror elements in it, thriller elements, and, uh, well, it's not that different from the previous book, I think, but it's a different book, so <laughs> what can you say? So, uh, last question for you, and again, thank you so much for your time, but um, are there, other than Secret Passages, which we're all very excited about, um, are there any other upcoming projects or news uh, that our readers should be on the lookout for? Well, not yet. Things happen slowly in the book market business and mm -hmm. well I have a third novel it's more a horror story than these two previous books and I, right now I'm working on my fourth novel uh, it's working title is uh, The Day of the Mutant Cat and it tells about dementia about mother-son relationships about losing mothers about losing memories, uh, things like that. But uh, I'm just beginning with it, so it's better I don't tell too much because it probably will be uh, 
whole different book. By the time you're so, done with it? Yes. Oh, I love the working title. Yeah. My Sounds wife like doesn't, so I'm, I'm <laughs> going to tell her that Tara loved it. <laughs> and therefore, it sh- you should absolutely go with it because my... No, no, no. <laughs> um, No, well, again, thank you so much for coming on with us today. It was such a pleasure to have you. Um, Is there anything else you would want to tell our readers that we just didn't even think to ask? Well, I just want all the readers to know that I have written those books in Finnish, so the language is better in them than could be expected on the basis of my speech. But thank you all. This was a pleasure although quite exciting pleasure, and I was quite nervous before. <laughs> but, yeah, it was oh. a good experience to talk with you, and thank you for it. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And, you know, no need to be nervous. We're, I think we were probably more nervous than you, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> this concludes our interview with Pazi Omari Yazkalenin. We hope you enjoyed the interview. We know we did. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you join us for our next monthly podcast at Sunrise Robot. Check us out at sunriserobot.net slash eclecticreaders or on our Goodreads page. Look for the relevant links in our show notes, and let's shelve this until next time. By the way, um, I should mention that this secret passages in a hillside town, it was dedicated to book blockers, to Finnish book blockers when it was published in Finland. Some of them liked it, but some of them felt I was trying to please them too much. But I I dedicated it to book blockers because um, in Finland, there have been a lot less critics, book critics in newspapers lately and the book bloggers have made the situation much better and we writers find that book bloggers in a way help us spread the word better than a magazine or newspaper critics ever so i think you all do very very valuable work uh, for literature and you help us writers as individuals to spread our works uh, into the hands of new readers, but you also are very valuable to the literature itself because there's so much competition nowadays. People play computer games and, uh, well, I I should often write instead of watching Netflix. But, you know, <laughs> but thank you all for it too.